Thank you for listening to the Prairie Oaks Pulpit Podcast. This is a recording of our Sunday morning sermons. I hope it is a blessing to you and contributes to your spiritual growth. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, supporting this ministry. God bless. Now let's get to the sermon. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Um, continuing our study through uh, the, letter of Ro- the letter to the Romans. And as we pointed out, this is Paul's introduction of who he is to a church that he's never visited. And as you can tell, he says very little about himself and he says a whole lot about Christ. And I think that's a good start for us just remembering that lesson. It's not a whole lot about me. It's a whole lot about Christ. And so uh, Romans chapter 2, we're probably going to cover everything that's in the chapter, but we're just going to look at the first 11 verses. And if you're able, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word? Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we're thankful for the time together. I thank you, Lord, for just each one has come out to worship together and to partake in prayer and in singing and in fellowship and in now taking heed to your word. I pray that you work in here and in Children's Chapel, Lord, to uh, sow the seeds of truth deep within our souls that it would produce fruit unto repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we we would see you start revival here, Lord, in our hearts, in our homes, in our community, and even to our country, Lord. We need revival. We need you. We thank you, God, for your great grace and mercy that you demonstrated at the cross. And your wrath and righteous anger at sin was poured out upon your son in our sacrifice, our substitute, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I think it's important to remember that Paul did not insert the chapter breaks. Paul is on a, on a tear here. He is 
explaining something. And he really is, he's, he shifts gears here a little bit, but it's like he's just going from second to third. He's not changing direction. He's just picking up steam. Because he spent chapter one explaining how sin is so pervasive within humanity, right? It started in his, his argument started there with ingratitude, just the simplest of sins, right? But that ingratitude, that habit we have of forgetting God and forgetting where the good comes from leads to other sins. Because when we're not mindful of God, we're mindful of self. And as we're mindful of self, then we start that downward spiral. And as he went through what his original readers would catalog as, well, those are the Gentile sins. Those are things that good Jews would never partake in. And the writings kind of indicate a lot of those things until you get to the last step where that debased, that worthless mind. And then all of a sudden now he's gone to meddling and he's dealing with all sorts of sins. The ones that we're comfortable with and that we practice ourselves and approve of in ourselves, as well as those that we would and everyone else would condemn. And so we see here where he is building up an argument, but he's going to, he, like I said, he's shifting gears here just a little bit, not changing direction, but he's now going to hit a particular demographic within the Roman church. And the reality is within all of humanity. And it's the hypocrite. Spoiler alert. It's, he's going for the ones that feel very smug in their standing before God because, well, I'm not as bad as those people are. And he says, I've got bad news for you too. God is not approving of that sin either. In fact, if you've ever read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus is kind to sinners except for hypocrites. And then he rips them. He just rips them. And so we see that that pride that is at the root of hypocrisy here. And so that's what's going on here in chapter 2. He says, so you're inexcusable, whoever you are who judge. Because as you judge one person, you're condemning yourself because you demonstrate that you know enough of God's law to be able to judge yourself rightly. Are you? That's the question he's asking is you're competent enough to judge according to God's law others. Are you judging yourself? Because you who can you who judge another, you condemn yourself. Because you're the, as the judge, practicing the same things. But I'm not practicing the things that I condemn. Well, maybe sometimes we do. It's oddly uh, a human trait that a lot of the things that irritate us the most about others are things that we do. It's true. And I don't like that kind of introspection, but yeah, welcome to it. It's it's where I live. If if we're going to spend time with God and his word, he's going to put his finger on those things because he doesn't like sin. He hates sin. And while we are right to elaborate on God's love for sinners, his love for sinners means he wants to separate sin from those sinners. He is in a hot pursuit to cause a separation between the two because he knows what sin is better than we do. He knows how deadly corruptive and despicable sin is. And he doesn't want it on anyone that he loves. You see how he does that? 
And so that's why he gets so meddlesome in our lives is because he knows what that sin is that we're sometimes very comfortable with. And if you need a refresher course, you can go back through verses 29 through 32 of chapter 1 just to kind of read through those. That some of them are, are very acceptable sins even within Baptist churches. Oh, me. And so we see here where Paul is then going to, to say, you who practice these things, you approve of these things. Because how do you approve of it? Because we make excuses for ourselves. Like my unforgiveness. But that person really hurt me. Yes, they did. He still said to forgive. Just as Christ forgave those who really hurt him. Who denied him. Who injured him. Who killed him. He forgave. He showed mercy and compassion to people who were really ungrateful. If you ever read through the... The Gospels, you'll see he heals people and they don't even say thanks. That's a very gracious and merciful God. Compassionate. I'm preaching at me. These things bother me. You know, and so he says here, you know that God condemns those sins. Are you practicing them? A little later in the chapter, he goes in in there around verses 20 and 21. He says, you know it so well, you teach others, right? Are you, you tell people not to steal, but what are you stealing? Are we stealing God's glory? Are we withholding what we owe to others? Oh, no one but the gift of, but, of, but love. Do you commit adultery? Christ got real meddlesome on that one, didn't he? Because he said, well, look in your heart. Look in your heart. That's where it starts. Same thing with murder. He says, look at the heart. Is there hate there? You know, one that I kind of wrestled with, and I think if you've read chapter two before, it's like, what's this deal about uh, if you abhor idols, do you rob temples? But remembering that Paul is speaking to those who kind of feel smug in their self-righteousness and their credentials, he's probably referencing Malachi when he said, are you robbing God of his tithes and his offerings of that going to the house of God? And so he is, he's really meddling here, isn't he? Because again, we come back to, uh, well, I'm under grace. I don't, I, I, there's not a law on that, is there? And I was like, well, that's between you and God. But I can tell you, he's very explicit about what he says. And so we need to count the cost. Because if we really if we really want to walk with God, which I dare say, I don't think any of us are going to raise our hands and say, well, I really don't. I want to go the wrong way. I'm pretty sure most of us aren't going to say that. Then we need to be willing to count the cost and to follow God. Because how can two walk together except they be in agreement? And so I need to be, you know, we pray for revival. 
well, what's hindering revival is me and my sin when I love sin more than I love God. And so, okay, this is what I need. And, and I'm going to get in trouble, and I'm sorry. I, I do think there's things I have learned in my walk with God. God isn't taking care of everything at once. I, I, he's still dealing with me on things that some of them are old things. Some of them are new things, things that I didn't ever think about. But now God's saying, you know, it's maybe time to go ahead and take care of this, too. And that's that's uncomfortable for us because it's one. It's like, well, I thought I was doing pretty good. And then all of a sudden God points out this thing, too. And it's like, oh, you want my pride taken care of here, too? Oh, gee. Or, oh, that person. You need me to forgive that person, too. Oh, you know, and that's. That's healthy. That's a part of us walking with God. But then we also need to remember that he's doing a different work in the same people in the same direction. But they're not being convicted on what they're convict- you're being convicted about. And you know, that really annoys us too, because it's like, well, why are they not convicted about that sin? Well, it's where God's with them. He may be working on something else with them that he's not working on you with but yet he's working on you about something that he's not really working with them about yet. You get a custom-tailored sanctification process by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that feel good when you hear that? Custom-tailored just for you. Sanctification process. Tailor-made just for you. But he is going to be working on something. Because otherwise we've done what this says and we've become hypocrites and we've become settled instead of pursuing God. And I, I don't want that for me. And I don't want that for you. Because he makes a statement here in verse 4. Again, I'm hopping around here in, in chapter 2. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That God is being very gracious with us. God is a lot more forgiving than we're willing to confess. God is a lot more gracious to us than we deserve. Hence the reason it's called grace. Hence the reason it's called mercy. But think about this. You know, go back to Genesis in your mind and... God warned Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And if you've read through it, he did not physically die that day. Deserved it, but didn't. Now, he spiritually died that day. God kept his word. Don't think God's a liar. But he deserved to physically die as well. But God spared him in his goodness In his forbearance, he withheld the just punishment that was deserved there. In his patience, his long-suffering. I don't know of anyone that long-suffers as much as God does with, with, with some of me, some of us, right? He withheld because he was wanting repentance more than he wanted to smite you, to smite them. And it happens over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures. 
And Peter says he's not slack according to his promises. Don't worry. But he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so that's the work he's doing. You think about that whole generation that rejected Christ and crucified him that day. They deserved to die that day. But Christ even warned them, I'll give you a generation's amount of time to repent if only you would repent. And then he wiped out Jerusalem fully and thoroughly in A.D. 70 by the hand of the Romans, just as he'd foretold in Daniel. Remember that part of the story? But you know, a funny thing, it's easy to miss in the book of Acts. There were Pharisees who came to Christ through the testimony of the apostles. Even one of their disciples became an apostle, Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church. We have a very gracious God. But for those who refuse to repent, he warns in verse 5 that you are storing up wrath through the hardness and unrepentant heart. There's a lot of, I, I'm a, I, I have the hoarding gene. I, I didn't get it from my mom or my dad, but it still happened. I don't know. But that's not something I want to hoard is wrath because the day of reckoning is coming. And one thing that I am thankful is that when God decides to get serious about convicting me, I'm, I just roll over. I'm, I'm like my old dog. I just, oh, I'm sorry. I don't have it in me to fight you anymore, God. I think that's a good attitude to be. You know, we, if you grew up in an old Baptist church and you heard those testimonies of the white knuckles on the, on the pew because they didn't want to respond to God, that's a dangerous place to be. Because we can exhaust the patience of God. And I don't want to store up wrath for that day. Instead, I want to be... Well, how did he finish that, that section there? He's going to render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, instead obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, they're storing up tribulation and anguish. That's what's coming. Because God's not partial. Whether you grew up a preacher's kid or the town drunk's kid, whether you grew up a good, in a good little Baptist church or you grew up just playing softball on Sunday mornings and whatever. It doesn't matter to God. What matters is not what your husband does, what your wife does, what your mom and daddy did, or what your grandpa did, or what your kids do. It matters what you do with the grace and goodness of God. And I do have to put an addendum on this here because as you read this two verses, it's easy to, for some to say, well, does that mean I'm saved by my works? No, 
Don't worry. He's going to make sure you understand that part. Your works are just treasuring up more trouble for you. It's by repentance. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. But we are saved for good works. If you're saved, it will show. If you're saved, it will show by these things that he lists here. And so I want it to show in my life. Because God, you know, and this is, this is my last stop here. It's a, it's a quick lesson here. God is, has written the law on everyone's heart. He says that in chapter 2. It's there. That they, even those who didn't know, they knew. Just like it said in chapter 1, they had evidence that God exists. You either pursue that light or you refuse that light. He says in chapter 2, in verse 15, who show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. When God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. We know better. We know better. And it doesn't matter then whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you uh, grew up the good kid or grew up the bad kid, whether uh, in Paul's letter here to the Romans, he had some who were, who were good, good Jewish kids that had been circumcised and, and taught the law and, and synagogue school and all those good things. And then he had some that were hooligans of the, of the Romans and, and, and slaves and, and whatever. And he says, it's by repentance and faith. And it's a repentance and faith that shows in its works because we're all sinners And that's what's pointing us towards chapter 3. And we're going to look more at that next week. There's none righteous. No, not one. It is a universal condemnation. If you have the law and you've read it, then you realize every mouth may be stopped. All the world is guilty before God. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But thanks be to God, he didn't leave us there. Because I have to tell you, I don't like preaching about sin because I'm preaching at me as well as you. And I'm surrendering. I'm surrendering. I don't, I, I, I don't have the fight in me to fight against God. And the reality is our arms are too short to box with God anyways. But the good news is, is our judge, Jesus Christ, like I said earlier, 
He just wants us to admit that. That we would admit, oh, I do have this sin thing. I've got a lot of this sin thing. That's how we get saved, right? It's because Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, born of the Virgin, without a sin nature. And so like the first Adam, he faced sin without having sin already in his heart. You and I, we all got, we got the same genetic that Adam passed along to everybody. That's the importance of those temptations that Jesus faced in the Gospels, is he overcame the tempter, whereas our ancestor, Adam, he failed. And we've been failing right along with him ever since. Jesus lived the sinless life, tempted in like manner as we are, yet without sin. He taught the way of God rightly. He taught the way of God so that sinners could be saved if they'd be willing to. You know, one of the most mind-boggling spots in in Jesus' teaching, he tells a story about two guys that went to the temple to pray. One of them came and he said, God, I thank you that I am such a wonderful person. I tithe on everything that I make. I have followed the law. I have lived such an exemplary life compared to that guy over there. And that guy over there, all he did, knowing his sin, said, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. He had not only sins in God's eyes, he had sins in everybody's eyes. Traitor to his country. But he went home declared righteous in the eyes of God because he, he said, God, I can't do it and I need you. That's scandalous. That's scandalous in the church. It's even more scandalous in the world that God would be that way. But that is our Savior, Jesus. And that's why he died on the cross let them murder him. Lay down his life for us so he could pay the penalty for that sinner who had nothing to show except crying out for mercy. And for sinners like you and me. He took it all on the cross so that we could come just as we are to him. And he rose from the dead. Glory. We celebrate that every week. He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Proved himself alive. Thomas, come here. You still doubt? Put your hand right here. Put your hand in the hole. I'm alive. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He was overcome by the resurrected Christ. He rose so that those men would be changed and so we could be changed, so that we could come as we are, but he wouldn't leave us as we are. But to transform us slowly, 
but surely into the image of him to be his little ambassadors running around. Just the same as he commissioned them, he commissioned us. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things, to do all the things that I have taught you. And don't forget, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, even to the end of the age. And that's what he's commissioned us to do. Because there's a whole lot of people that need Jesus. We all need more Jesus. Some show it more than others. But we all need more Jesus.